Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, a weekly podcast from the Yiddish Book Center. My name is Sebastian Shulman, and this week I'm on the phone with Dr. Jess Olson, an assistant professor of Jewish history at Yeshiva University in New York, and the associate director of YU's Center for Israel Studies. We'll be talking about Dr. Olson's new book, Nathan Birnbaum and Jewish Modernity, Architect of Zionism, Yiddishism, and Orthodoxy, published late last year by Stanford University Press. Jess, Baruch welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, I, I just finished your book uh, a few weeks ago, and I have to say congratulations. It's, it's not just uh, a wonderful work of scholarship, it's also just fabulously well written, um, and it's, it's, it's so readable and so accessible, yet, yet so, uh, you know, so much at the, at the highest levels of academic research. Really, congratulations. Wow, thank you very much. It's, it's really, uh, I, appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the compliment. Well, I, 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 I speak from the heart. Um, but for, for our listeners who might not be aware, um, you know, briefly, I know that you, you wrote a whole book about, about the man, but briefly, could you just uh, say who was Nathan Bierenboim? Well, very quickly, uh, you know, Nathan Birnbaum, I like to put it, was, was uh, the most important figure in the development of Jewish politics that you've never heard of. Uh, you know, he, he uh, was a journalist, uh, activist, uh, in, mostly based in Vienna, who came to the conclusions of the importance of Jewish nationalism at an extraordinarily young age, around the age of 16, 17 years old, uh, was a founder of the Zionist movement, one of the, the earliest founders, you know, over a decade before Theodore Herzl, and really served as a, as a, as one of his followers, Bertolt Feivel put it, as a lodestar for thinking about questions of Jewish national identity all throughout his career and then even after he ceased to work with, Zion, with the Zionist movement. And that's where it gets interesting. Once he left Zionism, which would happen around the time the movement really started to get off the ground under Theodore Herzl, uh, he moved into very different directions politically and culturally. He turned toward the Yiddish as uh, an ideal rallying point for a new form of Jewish nationalism outside of Zionism. And, and in that capacity, he was one of the planners and uh, the president, actually the president of the Chernovitz Yiddish Language Conference in 1908. And then finally, uh, one of the most extraordinary and, and to my mind, uh, fascinating developments is he uh, adopted orthodoxy uh, around the time, around, around his 50th birthday, actually, uh, became fully uh, observant, even, I would even say, kind of ultra-orthodox, to use kind of a, a contemporary term and was taken in as a leader in a developing uh, party called the Agudis Yisroel, which is pretty familiar, I think, now to most students of, of uh, Jewish politics and Jewish political history, uh, really from, from uh, a place of being completely outside of religious observance. He was uh, taken in to become a, a leader uh, in a, a growing and what would become kind of the most important orthodox political party in interwar Europe. So he's all over the map, and uh, to me, that's what makes him such a fascinating character. But for someone so important, you say he's he's basically been forgotten. Uh, how how does that happen for someone with such a a diverse and important story? Well, there's there's kind of two answers to that question. It's 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 a more nuanced question than than people realize. 
the term forgotten. In his lifetime, he was not forgotten at all. Uh, in fact, he, he lived uh, into his 70s. He died in uh, 1937. Over the course of his life, I mean, he was really his life kind of bookends the entire development of Jewish politics and these questions of Jewish national identity. He was seen throughout his life, even when he left behind nationalism as his, as his main fixation, as a very important figure. He was uh, uh, asked to comment regularly on issues of Jewish culture, identity, religion, politics, uh, people who were major figures in Zionism when it went in its own direction, Yiddishism when it went in its direction, would look back on him as being a seminal figure in their own thought. A uh, great example are people like Martin Buber, Franz Rosenzweig, among a number of others, attribute him very directly as being central to them formulating their ideas. Where he's been forgotten is in the history, in the writing of, of how we understand the development of these very issues that he was involved mm. with. And, and I think the reason, there are a couple of reasons why. Number one, he left behind Zionism at the point where it was becoming the most important and would eventually become the most viable form of Jewish national identity. That you know, in subsequent year, you know, we know that there was a eventually a state established based upon ideas of Zionism. When you're the person who left behind the movement, no matter how important you were in its early years, it's it's problematic. And so, part of the reason I think he's been forgotten by historians is because he didn't fit well into that particular narrative. But then I think there's also a bigger question, and that is that the direction he went in his thought was one that was very unusual for his time. Now, in this day and age, we're accustomed in the Jewish world to, to, to stories. I mean, a good friend of mine, Sarah Benor, wrote a book called Becoming Frum, which describes this phenomenon of the Balchuva movement, where a number of, of you know, American Jews, Europe and Israel as well, have decided that a, you know, Orthodox observance is the most meaningful expression of their Judaism, and they take on observance of... Uh, the mitzvot and all of its complexity. Birnbaum did that at a time when such a thing was almost unheard of. There were very few examples of people who had moved in the direction of kind of a secular identity, then going and taking on a religious and a consciously religious identity. Right. Uh, to me, this is a challenge uh, within Jewish historiography of, of, of how do we understand a person who went counterintuitively in the direction opposite to what most of the heroes of the story of modern Jewish history went. That is, most, the f most famous trajectory is, you know, the person who kind of comes out of the, the shtetl or comes out of this sort of traditional milieu or maybe the yeshiva world or something like that or a Hasidic household. Their eyes are opened by being exposed to, to outside ideas. They leave behind their religiosity, never look back, become, you know, your Achad Ha'ams or your Bereshevskis or these kind of people. Bernard did the opposite, and, and it's a little bit awkward, I think, and, and I, I, I think that that's part of the reason why uh, his, his story has not been told. I just think it, he's, he's very complex, and it requires uh, attentiveness to see him not just as a kind of person who you know, made a bizarre decision and, and, and made him, rendered himself irrelevant, but as someone who is challenging uh, the ideas we have about what it means to be uh, a modern Jew, uh, and that's, you know, obviously the title so <laughs> i mean it's it's a fascinating story and and even in circles in yiddish circles where where as he was as he's known as as i first learned about him as nosen birenbaum um right. 
that that whole uh, aspect of of his thought and his his political career in orthodoxy is sort of left out of the story. Um, so I think you rightfully um, emphasize that as as a moment, um, you know, in, in how he's remembered and how he's been sort of not erased, but it, but at least um, uh, his his influence has been uh, diminuted in the historiography. Right, right. And I just I want to add to that. Uh, it's very interesting that you bring in the Yiddish because one of the important I think components to his turn towards religiosity was another thing that made him sort of unusual, and that was his engagement with this this phenomenon that that sort of became called the Ostjuden, the Eastern Jews. That he, at a very early point, went in a direction that others later would, people like Buber, uh, and see, saw in the sort of masses of Jews in the Russian Empire and the eastern parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire as being the preserve of an authentic folk life. Then he took that a step farther, I think, arguably, when he turned towards religion. So in a sense, the Yiddish, his engagement with Yiddish was, was deeply uh, related to what would eventually become his turn towards religion. So let's, let's take a step back um, and talk, about, uh, uh, talk a bit about how you came to, to the subject of Birnbaum and sure. how you conducted your research. Sure. Well, I, ca I came to it as a very, very early in my graduate career. I was a student at Oxford, uh, the Oxford Center of Hebrew and Jewish Studies, and I was taking a course in Yiddish linguistics. And there had been work done on Birnbaum by, uh, among other people, uh, the linguist Joshua Fishman. And just kind of in the, you know, he seemed interesting. Here's this guy who, who uh, was a German-speaking Viennese university-educated uh, person who turned to Yiddish and, and decided that Yiddish was, was going to be this uh, repository of, of a renewal of Jewish culture. And I asked a question after the class. I sort of said, well, this Birnbaum seems very interesting. <laughs> and little, I didn't know anything about him. And the professor says, oh, yeah, he is interesting. You know, he founded Zionism, founded Yiddishism, and then he uh, founded the Agudas Yisrael. I was taken aback. I mean, it's an absolutely bizarre thing to say. <laughs> I mean, I never heard anything like it. Uh, and I was, you know, I was intrigued, so I pursued it a little bit further. And I found out, you know, that, that the only thing that, that my professor got wrong was just, you know, small detail. I mean, he didn't actually, he didn't found the Aguda per se, but I mean, he was definitely deeply involved in early years. Uh, most of the story was true, just in that kind of thumbnail sketch. And I was just, I, to me, it, that there hadn't been um, a kind of really sustained, long, you know, in-depth biographical study of him done seemed to be a real, uh, something really missing. What the icing on the cake was, though, was when I decided, uh, once I sort of continued on my graduate career, I then I was finished at Oxford and went to Stanford, I discovered through the, you know, kind of a couple of connections that all of his papers survived intact in one archive in Toronto, which is absolutely amazing. It's almost unheard of that a, a, an archive, an individual archive of a person from this period who didn't actually ever leave Europe right before the Holocaust would be completely intact. And not only that, I kept in a nice suburban house. So <laughs> I, 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 found, I found that you know, when I went to the, I uh, visited the, the, the papers, the papers were actually kept in the house of his grandson, David Birnbaum, uh, that it was surpassed, it, it surpassed anything I could have imagined. The, the archive was so immense and complete and 
breathtakingly deep <laughs> that you know it, it just that 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 dictated my my choice in terms of what I was going to spend the next several years of my life working on. Once I encountered these papers, I was already completely taken by the story. And once I had the papers to, to, to delve into, it just it made it you know, almost a no-brainer. Just to give our listeners an example, one of the, my favorite uh, documents that, that you talk about in the book are these handwritten student newspapers. It's, it's, it's one of Birnbaum's, or, or one of his, or his first uh, appearances in publication, and it's a handwritten student newspaper. It's just right. mind-boggling how that survived. It's amazing, it's, and, and it's, it's, you know, like, I, I don't know how to put it, it's just sitting there in this file that, that uh, you know, the, the, the paper you're talking about was called Megillah, and it was, you know, him and, and a couple of his buddies uh, who were all university students in Vienna just kind of founded a little club called Kadima and sat down and started handwriting their own club newsletter, and it's, inc- you know, it's, it's, it's an incredibly funny and really sophisticated piece. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this this document is just just sitting there, several pages of this handwritten uh, newspaper. Do you have a favorite treasure that you found during your research? Oh my gosh! Well, I mean, that one has to be one of the best. But but probably my my favorite in that it it speaks to just the complexities of this individual is actually a correspondence between him and uh, a young man by the name of Tuvia Horowitz who was a nephew of the uh, Vizhnitzer, Hasidic, the Hasidic sect, uh, the Vizhnitzer Rebbe, who befriended Birnbaum right as Birnbaum was in the process of, of adopting religious practice. And, I mean, it's an incredible correspondence, because here you have this very well-connected, but very young, and in terms of his exposure to the outside world, very inexperienced young man who is thirsting for, for something more, for some kind of way to bring his religious commitment and his deep engagement with his Hasidic identity into a wider world to make it more imp- relevant, more uh, helpful to others to sort of stimulate the same kind of renaissance that we're used to thinking about Jews and not in religious context being engaged in. And his exchange, of, and he happens to find Birnbaum. Birnbaum at this moment is kind of, you know, bereft of anything constructive to do. Uh, the war is on. All of his sons have been sent uh, to the front. They're all in the Austrian army. Uh, he's really living from sort of hand to mouth, trying to publish, you know, publishing articles here and there. And the two of them kind of feed off of each other's, they're both a bit lost, but they, as they develop this correspondence, you see just this wonderful friendship emerge, as well as you know the sort of historically important uh, details about how Birnbaum went from uh, one state in his life to another. So that, to me, is probably the most, and it's the first thing I ever wrote on in the archive. So that's probably another reason why it's my favorite bit. Sounds like an amazing place to start, and, and an amazing archive in which to do work. Yes, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, every time I go there, I. It's this mixture of, of exhilaration and despair because I just know that I, it, no one can ever do justice to the size of this archive. It's just incredible. And what was it like to, to go to these places like Vienna, like Chernovitz, and, and literally be in the places and follow in the footsteps of this person you had never met but, but you know so well? I, it's it's hard to describe. I mean, especially I would say, especially with Chernovitz, because it's it's a jewel of a city that that, that very few, uh, at least Americans, you know, have have any idea about. Uh, 
to actually see the, the you know the location of this history that I that I sort of experienced you know kind of secondhand through through text. Uh, it, it was it was incredible. Uh, I, I was privileged to give a, a, a talk, you know, in the same hall in a building in Chernovitz where part of the Yiddish conference had taken place. And you know, it, it I don't know how to describe it. I mean, it, it, it felt like uh, uh, just home in some ways, you know, because I'd been involved in it for so long. And the same is true of Vienna, to walk around in Leopoldstadt in the second district where where most of the sort of Jews of, of Birnbaum's milieu lived during the time. Uh, just incredible. So one of the, the, the things I, I really loved about your book, um, and, and full disclosure, I'm, I'm also uh, a historian here, um, so I speak, speak from, from that perspective as well. Um, is, is the way it reaffirms the place of biography as, as a, a means of scholarship, as a means of historical research. Um, and there's this, this really nice quote uh, from, your, from your introduction, and you say, the individual has remained the standard entree into an epoch. Um, would you mind just uh, unpacking that statement a bit and, and telling us how the life of Birnbaum tells us about the times in which he lived? Well, this is something that's very important to me. Uh, as historians, as, as Jewish historians, you know, biography has always had a kind of important place in the way we think about important figures in our history. You know, they're, they're your, your biographies of Mendelssohn, of uh, Herzl, of Ben-Gurion, whatever. Uh, but I think about the importance of biography in a slightly different way, and that is a person like Birnbaum, who is in some ways a marginal figure, some ways a forgotten figure, and he's, he's unique in that he experienced and, and participated in so much of this history. But what they do is they, they cast a kind of, uh, the term I, I, it comes from, my, I think, Lytton Strachey, uh, a kind of oblique sort of light on the period in which they live. And when you are able to kind of inhabit the intellectual space and, and the physical space in terms of walking the streets that they walk around, you're able to appreciate a much more nuanced idea of what the history was about. We're able to understand a little bit more uh, about why a person at the age of 17 might decide to become a nationalist when you, when you understand the experiences he had uh, as a uh, you know, young man in, uh, in an increasingly fraught, nationalistically divided place like Vienna, a place like the, the Austrian Empire. So that's sort of what I was after, is just that, that with biography, we are able to get a privileged insight in a way that other forms of historiography, you know, the very popular approaches is the kind of social history approach, that's how I was trained, uh, you, you don't quite get. Um, and that was one of the, that was really what drove me to, to want to embrace biography uh, for this project. Well, I, I think you very much uh, succeeded. This, this is like I said, not just uh, wonderfully researched, but wonderfully readable as well. So, shkoyach to you. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you very much. Um, the, the, the book, um, again, is Nathan Birnbaum and Jewish Modernity by Jess Olson. You can find it online at our bookstore, YiddishBookCenter.org, um, as well at your, your local booksellers. Um, thank you so much again, Jess. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to a podcast from the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. For additional interviews and conversations, please visit yiddishbookcenter.org audio. 
Our producer is Agnieszka Ilvitska. I'm Sebastian Schulman. Sei mir gesinnt und stark. Be well, be strong. And tune in again soon. Uh -huh.